This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, so if we've not met, good morning. Uh, Great to have you uh, with us this morning. Uh, If this is your first time, it's a joy to have you. You're kind of dropping in at the end of a series uh, called The Good Life. So we will finish up the Sermon on the Mount, which is we've been doing for months. I can't remember. Late fall we started maybe. I took a break for Christmas. But uh, we'll finish up next week, and uh, then we'll be moving into the book of Habakkuk. So if you want to start reading that now, if you'd like to look ahead to that, that's a, that's a prophet in the Old Testament. It is a fascinating book uh, that, uh, that starts with, where are you, God, and closes with, no matter what happens, I will praise you. So we're going to spend weeks figuring, how do you get from, where are you, God, life makes no sense at all, to, no matter what happens, I will praise you. So we're going to spend weeks finding how to get from point A to point B, because that's the transition Habakkuk makes, uh, and that's the transition we all need to make at various times uh, in our lives. But today, uh, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're in chapter 7 of Matthew. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to verse uh, 15, chapter seven fifteen. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, and you can turn to page Oh, I believe it's 474 if memory serves me, and, uh, but it may not serve me. Oh, it does, page 474. I don't have the scripture uh, memorized, but I can tell you the page number in the Bible under your seat. So amazing. Uh, perhaps that's trivial. But anyway, uh, here we go. So we are finishing the, the Sermon on the Mount, and there is no way to describe the last three sections but sober. They're very sobering, and... Uh, uh, and, and it's just Jesus calling for response. And he's in essence in these last three sections saying, how you respond to what I'm teaching here, uh, that will determine your eternity. I mean, the stakes cannot be higher. He could not raise the stakes uh, any higher. Last week we saw in verses 12 through 14 that Jesus is calling people to response, saying there are only two ways. And he makes this exclusive claim that I am the only way to the path to life. No one can come to God the Father except through me, we saw, he says in the book of John. So he makes this exclusive claim that I am the narrow gate and all other ways are the broad gate. My way is hard. All other ways are easy. My way leads to life. All other ways lead to destruction. So he makes uh, an exclusive uh, that is, is very radical. Um, all other religions, philosophies, beliefs, and, and forms of unbelief end up in destruction is what Jesus says. And we talked about that. We talked about how does that work in an inclusive uh, culture last Sunday morning. And then we worked, uh, talked through that on the podcast as well last week. Uh, you can go back and listen to the, both of those resources if you would uh, like on our website. And then he transitions to this stark warning. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 today. This is God's word to us. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is always true and your word is always good for our soul, that your word is uh, our hope and our protection and, uh, and our guide. And we pray today that you would speak to us through this word. And I pray that those in, of us in the room that need to hear the various parts of this passage, that, that you would emphasize to each of us very personally uh, where we are, that you would emphasize the scripture to each of us. We pray that there would be a tailor-made application to every soul in the room as we uh, explore your words. Give us ears to hear. Open eyes, open blind eyes, open deceived eyes, um, open falsely assured eyes to help us to see your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the previous section, he had said, narrow is the gate, uh, and then he immediately transitions to verse 15, beware of false prophets. Uh, Beware of false prophets who deceive. And then in verses 21 through 23, he talks about beware of being deceived. Uh, So he's really sort of doing two things here. He's talking about deceivers, and then he's talking about the deceived. Uh, And that's what we are going to look at today in that order. First of all, the deceivers he speaks about. These are false prophets. Beware, verse 15, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he is saying they come, these various deceivers, these false prophets, they come disguised. They come in costume. They come wearing sheep's clothing. They, they look like a sheep, but they are in fact wolves, not just wolves, but ravenous wolves. So they come talking like sheep. They sound like sheep. They've got the ba of a sheep, you know. They sound like one. They, they try to act like sheep. They even lead sheep. They teach sheep. They prophesy to sheep. But their real motive is not to help the sheep. Their real motive is to help themselves to the sheep because they are wolves. They are wolves who come for their own intent. What is it that these deceivers do? Well, they're described as prophets, which means they're individuals who claim to speak for God. Now, we often think of a prophet as someone who foretells the future, um, and that might be part of what's going on here. Certainly, it could be someone declaring a false future. Uh, That's possible. But a prophet did much more than foretell the future. That would be a very small part of a prophet's job description. A prophet is one who spoke for God or spoke from God. A prophet was one who was designated to address God's people, to give God's people God's view of things. 
to tell God's people, this is what God says about what's going on in a given circumstance. So rather than foretell, they primarily were given to forth-telling. They told forth uh, the word of God. And in so much as they were uh, concerned with helping people obey God in the present, at points they pointed towards the future and said, given this future, this is what God says to you today about what you are doing. So that's what a prophet does. And these prophets, rather than serve the sheep or bring God's word to the sheep, they are acting out of self-interest. They don't serve the sheep, they use the sheep. They are prophets who claim to speak from God, and yet God has not sent them. God has not endorsed them. God does not endorse them and what they say. Uh, They don't deliver God's message. They don't speak for God. And the real emphasis in this passage is probably that they don't represent God in their character either. So certainly there's something to do with their message here, but it talks about fruit. So there's something about their life and their character or the fruit of their teaching. Neither their message nor their lives represent Jesus. So to make the point, he sort of changes the analogy from wolves and sheep to grapes and figs. That's what he says Next, he says that uh, thorn bushes don't yield grapes, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, verse 16, or are figs gathered from thistles, still in verse 16. So he's saying, you know, you don't go to a thorn bush and get grapes. Um, A grape bush, a grapevine, rather, produces grapes. Some commentators point out the reality that thorn uh, bushes uh, would Uh, bear a small dark berry that at a distance could look like a grape, but once you get close to it, you will see that it is not a grape at all. So perhaps Jesus is giving that kind of detail in the illustration and saying that once you get close to the false prophet, once you see his or her life, uh, once you uh, really understand their teaching, you will see their fruit is Well, it's not good fruit at all. It's not grapes. It's not figs. If you get close to them, you will see they don't really look like Jesus or represent Jesus. You need a healthy tree to produce good fruit. You need a uh, healthy tree to produce uh, anything that is living. But a dead tree produces bad fruit or doesn't produce at all. And Jesus says, that in verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a picture of judgment, which he will transfer, uh, translate to next and talk about judgment. So he's saying these false prophets, you'll know them by their fruit. These false prophets will ultimately be like a dead tree cut down and judged eternally. So who are these false prophets in Jesus' day? He obviously had some, some folks in mind, right? Um, who are they in our day? Uh, you know, can you give me a list of the names? Uh, can you run through the bookstore and the Christian television and uh, the church websites and tell us who are the false prophets? Well, I'm not going to project a list of names today. Uh, What I am going to do, though, is try to identify 
uh, some, some ways to evaluate so that you would know. What, what are the filters that we can use in evaluating false prophets? And as we typically say all the time, context is key. Context is so important. And, you know, it's sort of like concentric circles. I want to go to the direct context. What are the immediate verses around this? And what do they tell us? That's where we can feel strongest. The farther we move from the immediate context, oftentimes the more speculating we're doing. So uh, I'll go a little bit away from the immediate context, but I, I want to stay pretty close to the immediate context here today. And here is the immediate context. The immediate context is verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it uh, are many. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets. So Jesus doesn't just start beware of false prophets out randomly. He doesn't just say, okay, I've got 10 different topics I'd like to talk about. Number nine, well, here it is. Number 10, completely unrelated, but let's have a word about false prophets. No, that's not how the Bible works. That's not how a sermon works. He's, he's connect, these are connected ideas that he is talking about. So we, I, I think we could say in the sharpest sense that false prophets are those who lead people away from the narrow gate and lead them down the broad road to destruction. In our day, those who say Jesus is not the narrow gate, that is, he's not the only way to lead to life, are false prophets. Those who say that, that all roads lead to God, those who say that there is no coming judgment, are false prophets. Uh, it, that's, it, it contradicts immediately what Jesus has said in the context. Uh, and those teachers who teach that, that, that teach ultimately everyone, there's not two ways, but everyone will receive eternal life, that you don't need to enter through Jesus, <clears throat> that he's not exclusive, that he's one way to many, but we all end up on the same in the same location. Uh, those who teach that will bear very bad fruit. Because the fruit they will bear is they will lead people into what Jesus calls the broad path the, that leads to destruction. And they will endorse people on that path. They will bring a false comfort to those who don't believe in Jesus, who've denied Christ. They will bring a false comfort to them saying, you're okay when you're not okay, according to Jesus. So that would clearly be a category of false prophet. If we broaden the context a little bit and say, what is, who is Jesus addressing in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, we see that at the very beginning, <clears throat> one of his earliest points is that you must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. He is, he is speaking against a legalistic, religious, external righteousness that the Pharisees have. And he is talking about a different kind of righteousness. So in the context of what he's addressing here, I think it would certainly be very fair to say and would not be introducing a new category at all, but would be very fair to say that anyone who teaches that righteousness can be achieved on our own, that you can be secure before God because of your own righteousness. Anyone who lays out a system of legalism that makes our personal obedience and our holiness the gate that leads to life, 
as opposed to Jesus being the gate that leads to life, that is a false prophet. That is a false message. I'm not talking about someone that just is a little bit legalistic in their practice or something like that, and they just missed a few points. I'm talking about someone that is fundamentally emphasizing as an overall teaching and pathway that you must (coughs) earn your way to the path, that you must earn your way to eternal life, that Jesus offers himself as the gate, but if you offer another gate, if you say it is your performance, Jesus and your performance, Jesus plus your performance, uh, it is your, ultimately your, you are secure by what you do, um, that Jesus is a teacher that shows you the way, and as, as you embrace the teaching and perform the teaching, then you can be accepted. That, that is a false way. Ultimately, people who teach false ways and do so for their benefit and their gain fit into this category. It's not just someone that sort of is mistaken in an area um, and will grow and and develop and mature. Uh, It is someone who is ravenous. That is someone who is acting for, uh, for their own gain. They are actively leading people astray and they are benefiting from it in some way. That this, is, this is what's important here, that they are ravenous wolves. That is, they are not someone that is simply mistaken. They are someone who is seeking to uh, harm other people for their benefit. Uh, even if they don't, may not see it as harm, they're seeing as I, I'm teaching this and I'm gaining uh, uh, on it. It is a preying on the sheep in some way. I would say similarly, people who call others to follow Jesus but have no concern, no concern about following him themselves, that would be a false prophet as well. A person that is uh, a dead tree that produces no fruit um, and, and, and is seeking to gain from the sheep, uh, from their role as a prophet, uh, that is that is uh, leading people to uh, destruction as uh, well. He goes on to say, because of his, because of the life does not reflect a person who knows Jesus. He goes on to say that those who call him Lord, uh, Lord, but are at the end workers of lawlessness. So verse 23, people that call Jesus Lord, but verse 21, call him Lord. Verse 23, but their life is, they are workers of lawlessness. They have no relationship with Jesus. He's never changed them. His spirit does not uh, live within them. That might be harder to know someone's fruit if it's not someone you know and have access to their life. That might be harder to determine. But his point is the person who teaches and yet lives a completely unrepentant lifestyle. That person is a dead tree as well. Dan Doriani in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount which maybe will run on sale now that the series is over, but th- this book is out there. He says, there's, he identifies another group of false prophets. He says, pointing to the context, quote, Jesus mentions false prophets here because it is a hallmark of false prophets to deny that the way is hard. So Jesus has said, take up your cross and follow me. The way is difficult. And Doriani says, you know, people that deny that very fundamental truth of what Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest for sure. Uh, my my uh, yoke is easy and my burden is light for sure. 
and yet you will have tribulation in this world, Jesus says. And so those who deny that uh, are not bringing the true gospel. See, the reality is there, there are people that teach an enticing message that to follow Jesus is to move towards a problem-free existence. That to follow Jesus is to remove uh, all suffering and difficulty from your life. And that is true if we're talking about eternal life. Like post-death, that's true. Post-resurrection, that's true. Po- our resurrection. Post-return of Christ, yes, that is true. That we will have a trouble-free, problem-free, sin-free existence. But those who teach that we should expect that now, when Jesus has just said the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, and then for someone to say to follow Jesus means that you do not have to ever be sick, you do not have to suffer, you do not have to experience difficulty, you do not have to be discouraged. None of that is part of the Christian life. When Jesus has just said the opposite, he said the opposite and said, watch out for false prophets. Well, what is a false prophet other than someone who represents Jesus falsely uh, according to what he has said? Those who promise a trouble-free life, a material blessing, uh, attract many people, and they often profit personally from that kind of teaching. And those who profit off the sheep, who devour the sheep with a false message, uh, who are dead trees themselves that don't know Jesus themselves, those are false prophets. So to summarize, those I'm, I'm going from this verse and then from the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to address Pharisees. But those who teach universalism, that there's one gate and it's broad, uh, that's false. Those who teach legalism in the sense of you, the way to the gate is your righteousness. The gate is your personal holiness and the way is you maintaining your holiness. Uh, that leads to life. That's a false message. Jesus uh, is the gate himself. Those who are fundamental hypocrites, everybody in the room's a hypocrite. Okay, I'm a hypocrite, you are. No one lives up fully to their confession of faith. So everybody's a hypocrite, but someone who is a fundamental hypocrite. The Spirit of God does not live in them. They are not Christians. They do not follow Jesus. They do not believe in Jesus, and yet they are teaching uh, and claiming to be his. That is a false prophet. And those who make Jesus's way seem to be what it is not, what he teaches is not, and do so for gain and for profit. We're not talking about a new Christian that's ignorant or a person that just is is ignorant. That's all they've heard. We're talking about someone who does not know Jesus and is materially or in some other way, power, some way, gaining off the sheep, devouring them by teaching a false gospel. That's a false prophet. They misrepresent God in word and or deed. So he says, watch out for this sort of thing. And then in the next section, he talks to the deceived, not just the deceivers, but the deceived, verse 21 through 23. Uh, This certainly applies to the prophets, I think, from verses 15 through 20. But I think this also more broadly uh, applies to everyone who claims to follow Jesus. I think it applies to all of us. This is a warning. He's addressing the sobering topic of judgment, and he's not just talking about the judgment of prophets. I think he's talking about uh, all judgment, though, in the context, most specifically, he may have them in view 
as well. So on verse, in verse 22, it says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So on that day, he's speaking of a future day of judgment. And he's making the point that everyone who just says, and I believe we could say merely says, you know, merely makes a verbal profession, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who just claims to agree with Jesus by their words, uh, that, that a mere empty profession, uh, that that is not sufficient to enter the kingdom. Uh, empty profession is not enough. Um, believing in Christ means more than just a verbal assent, a verbal agreement. Um, so these individuals plead their case. Verse 22, they say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? So they plead their case. They say, Lord, we're with you, and you know that, that doesn't hold up. And so then they say, okay, well, look at what all we did for you. So we, we look at what we did for you. They point to their gifts. They point to their spiritual sort of works is what they point to. So it's first verbal assent, and when verbal assent, everyone who calls, when that's not sufficient, then they move to, here's our case, these are our gifts, and these are our spiritual works. Don't you remember, Jesus, we prophesied in your name? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember, Jesus, that we gave words from you, is what he's saying? We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works. Don't you remember that like these false disciples we too can very easily look at spiritual gifts or works of spiritual power and we can make an assumption that jesus doesn't make we can assume when we see something or hear something like that it must be god at work so the person doing this must know god it must be god at work so the person doing this must know god but if we step back just a little bit, we'll see the Bible itself does not endorse that. The Bi uh, you know, spiritual gifts or spiritual powers or even so-called spiritual gifts or powers are not solid evidence or not uh, conclusive evidence, not bulletproof evidence that the person has a true relationship with God. Think about the 12 and all that they did to represent Christ. They did all of these. They spoke in his name. They cast out demons. They did miracles. And as far as we know from the Gospels, every outing where that happened, Judas was present. And the Bible tells us, gives us no indication that Judas wasn't participating in all of that. And yet he was a false disciple or apostle. Or think about back in the Old Testament, we see this as well. Think about Moses and Aaron and presenting signs before Pharaoh and uh, the early signs, not the later, not the ultimate signs, but the early signs were mimicked and produced by their magicians as well. Uh, and, and so someone looking at that could have seen some kind of, uh, it was satisfying to Pharaoh early on, that, that the, the court magicians could do the same thing. Now, whether that was some kind of spiritual power or what, there are false spiritual powers um, as well. So on Judgment Day, these have a verbal profession. They have experienced 
uh, some spiritual powers, but they don't know Christ. And more importantly, he doesn't know them. That's the real key. Verse 23, and then I shall declare to them, I never knew you. Knowing here indicates a personal relationship. Jesus is not saying, I was never aware of you, uh, like I knew everyone on the planet, but you people. It wasn't, he's not saying, it's not, no doesn't mean awareness. It mean, he's saying, I never knew you as my son, or I never knew you as my daughter. I never knew you as my child. And in some of the heaviest words of all of Scripture, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? They, they profess Christ at some level. They have done, they claim that they have done these mighty works in his name. But Jesus says, you're workers of lawless, you, lawlessness. You didn't do the will of my father, verse 21. You didn't really know me and respond to me. You worked lawlessness. You were uh, you lived a life of disobedience to the scripture. There was no sense of you ever being changed by me, is what he's saying. We weren't in relationship. W- you weren't in Christ. Uh, Christ wasn't in you. You weren't in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. We did, I did not know you. So what he's saying is uh, not everyone who says, uh, Lord, is really converted, not everyone who has a resume that they could point to some gifts or some spiritual activity has been converted. Not everyone who has a resume of church attendance or uh, religious activity or even leadership uh, is necessarily converted. And this passage is sober for sure, but it's really good news because we're hearing this now and the Lord is in essence giving a warning. He's giving a warning that for those who hear his words, or read his words, or hear his words today, it's not too late. It's really good news because he's saying no one needs to deceive themselves. No one needs to have a false conversion. No one needs to have a false profession. No one needs, having heard this, uh, to have a false sense of relationship with God. It's good news to hear this now rather than on what Jesus calls that day. On that day. Um. When my wife and I were in high school, uh, we were part of a church. We were part of the same church, same youth group, but that's where we met. But we were part of a church together. And uh, I remember, I don't remember exactly when in high school, but at some point in high school, uh, this has stuck with me because it was so unexpected. We had an associate pastor at the church get converted. Like while he was an associate pastor at the church. I can remember him getting baptized uh, someone else did it. He didn't baptize himself, but uh, he, another pastor baptized him. But this guy was an associate. And at the time, I thought, wow, that is, that's a little odd that this guy was a pastor at our church. Uh, and he came to realize, perhaps from a passage like this, that he wasn't genuinely converted, that he was just doing religious activity. And uh, at the time, it struck me as odd. I now look back at it, and I think, It's tremendous good news that that man came to that conclusion prior to Judgment Day and that he had the humility to kneel before the Lord and acknowledge his need for a Savior 
and to acknowledge that he had, I don't know the backstory, but that for whatever reason, he had been going through the motions publicly and did not know the Lord. I find that now to be a great grace. And it, it, one thing it did was it removed the, the shame that can be associated with wrestling with assurance of faith. I mean, uh, you may, there are many people that are embarrassed to say, I don't know, and so I don't even look at it, or I don't want to look at it, or I wrestle with this topic, but I don't feel free to talk about it because it would be embarrassing. Well, in that context, the embarrassment was removed because someone publicly said, you know, gave their testimony and opened up their old life. And I, I give that illustration to uh, not cause anyone to question, anyone who has assurance of salvation, I don't call that to question anyone, but the, but the, the person who wrestles or doesn't know, that it's, it was a very freeing kind of experience to see that someone can, uh, someone can deceive themselves or be deceived. Uh, so how do we apply this? Well, the scripture says that every one of us ought to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, I think Je Jesus is leading us in that right here. 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And your pastors would not be faithful shepherds if we didn't, I mean, I don't teach on this topic very often because we don't come to it all the time in scripture, but we would be unfaithful if we didn't call you, call ourselves to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So how do I know if I have a false faith, like is the case in verses 21 through 23? These people had a false faith. How do I know? Well, in this case, uh, and again, I'm gonna use this context because I think it's the most helpful. They agree, evidently they agree to some degree with the message of the gospel. So there's some agreement uh, but they don't really know Jesus. They've never encountered him. They, they have some agreement with the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our sins. They have some agreement with the gospel, but they've never been changed at all by the gospel. They've never had the power of God touch them. And can, I, can we just acknowledge that we live in a place in the DFW area where there are so, so many people of a certain age that grew up in an environment hearing about Jesus and in third grade in Sunday school or at VBS or with their parents or something prayed, felt emotional and prayed some prayer inviting Jesus into their heart but their life has never changed and so they don't look anything like a disciple of Christ today and yet in their heart they don't look like a disciple of Christ and yet they, they rest on, I prayed some prayer at some moment. And the reality is that if that was a sincere act of faith and repentance, there would be some, some evidence of a changed heart. It, it, it's not a mere verbal profession. These people in verses 21 through 23 have, I'm calling it a mere, an empty profession. I mean, maybe they were even baptized. That happens a lot. The third grader prays a prayer or whatever, you get the idea. It could be an adult, but it's more frequently a child this happens to because they don't understand fully. Oftentimes they can't count the cost or they don't count the cost, so they're not asked to. And so they just pray a prayer. 
Um, and, uh, and then what happens is they may even be baptized, but there's no real sense that the Holy Spirit gave them new life. They, they're not a new person. They were never joined to Christ. They never really believed. They didn't really understand. It was an emotional moment. It was something uh, my friend was doing or, or whatever. It was something I felt pressure from my parents to do. It was something that just seemed like the thing to do. It was something I was scared and didn't want to go to hell, so I prayed this prayer. But there's never been a new desire for Jesus in their heart. That's the point. A mere profession, a mere profession alone, there's no sense of the Holy Spirit giving a new desire for Christ, a new desire for his word. The Spirit isn't changing them. And it may be very slow. Some of us make very, very slow progress. And, and we just take its baby steps for years. But there is some progress. There is some movement towards Jesus. If you have prayed a prayer or you have said, I cried out to Jesus, or you walked down an aisle or you did something at an event, uh, at a camp or at a rally, or you did something, but there has never been a sense of God's spirit in your life, then, then you may be this kind of person described here. The question is, are you a new person? The new birth takes a person that is dead and makes them alive. It doesn't, I'm not asking, are you as godly as Paul? I'm not asking, are you in the top 50% of the room in godliness? I'm asking, where is, can you say I was dead and now I'm alive? That's what the Bible says. Can you say I was blind, but now I see? It, can you have evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that there is a conviction at points of sin, and there is a desire fundamentally to please him? You would say, I fundamentally, I, I'm weak, I don't do great all the time, but I fundamentally want to take up my cross and follow him. I'm with him. I want to follow him with my life. That's what happens in true faith. These disciples here say, we just kind of said his name. And then we did some religious practices in his name. So in this context, a false faith is a mere empty profession and a reliance. And the proof, and if you're questioned on it, the proof is you did some spiritual stuff. Okay? Mere empty profession and some kind of spiritual stuff that you did. That Do you know what they're doing? They're claiming their works. But we did this, Jesus. We have to be right with you. A true faith originates with a work of God in you that, 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 get, that leads you to turn in repentance and faith. You genuinely turned to Christ and trusted him. Even as a kid, you genuinely turned. And it may have developed over the years, but it has, your understanding's grown. But it has grown. Romans 10, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So speaking with your mouth, maybe they did that. I think they did. Jesus is Lord. There's, at least at Judgment Day they're doing that, saying, Lord, Lord. So there's a confession with the mouth, but there's a belief in the heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not just an intellectual understanding. It's not agreeing with a fact. It's not just assenting to a fact. I believe that Jesus is the Lord. And I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I'm, I'm agreeing to those two facts. But this is a belief in the heart, the very core of who you are, that it is a response to him that's not merely intellectual, 
but it is from the heart that you believe he is alive. God raised him from the dead. And you are, the belief here is you are sort of banking on his death and resurrection for you. For with the heart one believes and is justified. You're not merely affirming a fact. You're affirming a Lord of your life from your heart. You're trusting him. So that's different. True faith is entrusting ourselves to Christ. We're not confident in our, our profession alone or our works alone. We're confident in Christ alone. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So he, the, the real tr- biblical trust, saving faith, is an entrusting of oneself to Christ alone. These people seem to be entrusting themselves. They're, they're, they're entrusting, their trust is what they did. But here, it's an entrusting of oneself to Christ. I, I, read, a, uh, I read a story about some Bible translators. And uh, this guy was translating the Bible. He was in uh, perhaps, much, perhaps very similar to our friend's the hares uh, from this church who were doing Bible translation. But he was in some place and he had learned the language and he was working on translating the scripture. And when he was working, one of the men from the village came into the room, per, uh, into the room where he was working, perhaps from a day's work in the, in the field or whatever. And he came in and just let out this, uh, uh, the guy translating, uh, uh, this is important detail. The guy translating was uh, trying to understand their language. What's the best word for faith? He didn't want to talk about mere intellectual assent, but he wanted to get the idea of trust. And uh, so when the guy came in from working, uh, he comes in and he just like collapses into this seat and he uses a phrase in their language, which basically meant, you know, I'm throwing all my weight on this. I'm all in. I'm leaning in, I'm, I'm, I'm resting here. All that I have is resting and plopping here. I don't know the exact phrase in their language, but that was the sentiment of the word to which the translator said, I now have the biblical word for faith. It is not entrusting your works or yourself. It is looking to what Jesus has done. It is intellectually believing in what he's done. It's believing in your heart for yourself. And then it's entrusting all your hopes for salvation in him alone. Not your mere profession, not your mere understanding, not your works, but what he has done for you. This kind of genuine faith and repentance joins us to Christ. One of the most common ways Paul talks about being a Christian is you are in Christ and he is in you. It joins us to him and his spirit indwells us. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, his spirit actually provides an internal testimony. They don't say anything like that. Uh, these people in this account we're reading. Uh, the Holy Spirit changes our desires. They don't talk about that at all in their example. Um, it, it moves us more and more to want to obey Christ. And when we don't, there is an awareness that, that I just can't live with that. I can't live uh, uh, endlessly forever that way. But there is a desire to know Christ and to honor him. There is a desire to no longer live a lifestyle of unconcerned lawlessness. Do you sin as a believer? Yes. May you sin pretty significantly? Yes. But may you live an entire life where you, have an un, where you lack any concern for lawlessness? No. Jesus says, depart from me, uh, you workers of lawlessness. 
That's why if the Spirit of God has not changed us at all, so we have no concern for the things of God, we have no concern for the person of God, we have no concern when we are going off and wandering, it doesn't bother us. If that's where you're at, that's where you are, then you should carefully examine yourselves and see, is this a real faith or is this artificial? 1 John 2, 3, he writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him uh, because uh, if we keep his commands. If you, read the, if you read the book of 1 John, it's not talking about flawless obedience. Nobody but Jesus is flawlessly obedient. But one of the signs that we know him is that there is now a new heart and over time an increasing obedience. So how do we cultivate assurance? Because my goal is not to cause anyone who's got reason for assurance to question that. I want to confirm your assurance. If you have reason to question, then please get some help, respond to the Lord, talk to someone, cry out today for his salvation. But if you are really trusting Christ and have really trusted Christ, if you've repented and believed in him, then it's important to cultivate assurance, true assurance. And we do that not by focusing on ourselves. So examine ourselves is not a camping spot. It's a momentary evaluation or maybe even a season, a brief season of evaluation. But it's not where you spend every day. You don't spend every day examining to see what you're in the faith. You spend every day looking at Christ and what he has done for you. That's how we ultimately sort of cultivate. And we can cultivate and grow in assurance. I believe that we should. And that happens when we focus on Jesus. When we saturate our minds in what he's done for us. And when his death and resurrection becomes more precious, we cherish that. that that's a very very reliable sign that the Holy Spirit's at work in you and that you are his. If you are growing in love for him, growing in appreciation of what he has done for you, uh, that is a wonderful sign. So we focus on what he has done for us. We read the scripture, the gospels. We hear the gospel preached. We gather with his people. These kinds of things uh, cultivate our assurance. Faith grows in community, but faith fades in isolation. Sometimes people doubt their salvation uh, and, and the reality is they're just disconnected from a regular embrace of the gospel. Maybe they really are Christians, but they've forgotten. They're distanced. Their confidence in Christ is eroded because they're spending no time thinking about what Christ has done. They may or may not be a Christian, but in cases, if they are, th there could be a, just a, a loss of assurance because they're not taking advantage of the means of building our faith that comes as we look at Christ and his gospel together. We cultivate confidence in Christ's power to save us, not our power to save ourselves, just the opposite. Every time you cultivate appreciation in the gospel, you lower appreciation for your own works as a mean of means of salvation. You renounce them. You can't celebrate what Jesus has done for you and celebrate your works to make yourself right with God at the same time. To celebrate Jesus is to renounce your self-righteousness. And so that's why we want to focus on the gospel. Uh, and, and if you are unsure, the reason I shared the, I, I knew that was a risk. And maybe it was, maybe the guys are going to tell me at the break, don't, that was not helpful. But the reason I shared about one of my pastors getting converted was not to cause people who know Jesus to really unhelpfully question. It was to remove the shame factor of that and say, no one should be embarrassed. At the, I don't care. I used the example of a pastor. I don't care if you're a pastor on this staff. I, I don't care if you just walked in the door today. You should not feel ashamed to admit to someone and get some help. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. 
Well, yeah, but you teach Sunday school. That's okay. You lead a community group. That's okay. You were playing an instrument up here. To, let's, let's, solve, let's, let's deal with this now, not that day. Let's take your title and what you do, and it would be terrible if anybody knew. Let's take all that aside and say, if you wrestle with assurance, talk to someone. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to someone. Talk to a mature friend that can help you. Let's talk about this. Let's look at the scripture. Let's pray together because you don't have to live with this sort of, you know, well, I don't know. You can have an assurance granted by the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you in that. And that's why I told the story. So because it just says anybody could wrestle with this and has wrestled with this. And there's no shame. One of the greatest ways we cultivate assurance is through communion. And that's how we're going to close the meeting. You know, we're not going to really close the meeting by spending all the time examining ourselves. We're going to close the meeting by looking at Jesus. And we may leave from here continuing to examine ourselves, but if, you, if that's where you're at. But, but I want us to examine, and then I want us to turn and look to Christ. And so if the ushers will come, let's stand together. And we're going to receive uh, communion today as a, uh, as a means of recognizing this reality. When you hold the bread and you hold the cup, and when you receive them, what you are saying is my salvation is based on something that happened outside of me. It happened outside of me. And Jesus has given me this tangible reminder of his body broken and his blood shed. Uh, they're about to pass the elements. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, go ahead and receive them and hold on. It's a double cup, so you'll get the bread at the bottom. But hold on to them, and we're going to receive it together. If you're not a Christian then uh, it would be better for you to wait because this would not be meaningful. It's an identification with Jesus. And if you haven't identified with him, this won't be meaningful for you. But come see us at the end. We'd like to talk to you and help you know what it means to experience Christ and salvation, believe in him. So this is powerful because it's saying my salvation is not based on me. It's not based on an empty profession, and it's not based on a resume of what I've done. It is based on his body broken and his blood shed. And this is a stark, vivid reminder that trust in Christ is, uh, that, that's where my salvation lies, what he has done. My salvation lies in him. I have been saved by him. So let's sing together as we prepare. Hold on to the elements we'll receive in a moment. God has given us his word, his word proclaimed. Um, and he has given us the sacraments as a means that when we gather to look away from ourselves, to look to him. And it is his means of grace that are ultimately the most securing uh, for our assurance. And that's because it is a pointing away from ourselves and a pointing to Christ. We, we take the bread today recognizing that our standing before God is based on the fact that Jesus' body was torn, that we might be one with Christ, we might be reconciled to him. And Jesus' blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven. We could, we're saying, I could never be good enough. I could never bear enough fruit. If we took all day on that day, I couldn't list enough works of stuff I had done to make me right with you. The only hope I have is the blood of Jesus, the God-man who took God's just punishment for my sin. His body broken, his blood shed. My confidence lies outside of me. And that's what we are doing as we receive this to get today. We're resting afresh our faith in him. And by his spirit, he is meeting us as we do this. He is present and he is meeting us. And he is, uh, I believe, bolstering, 
the true Christian, he's bolstering our, our faith in him today. So let's pray and then we'll receive together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.